Hey, well, good morning, everyone. How are we today? Have to be doing good after seeing all those little kids. That's so awesome to see that. So grateful for Brian and uh, his, his work with that ministry, with our, with our kids' ministry, and so excited for the VBS and all the work that he's doing there, and so thankful that he preached that incredible message last week. Can we just thank Brian for all that he's doing right now? He's got a lot on this plate, so we're really grateful for Brian. Um, uh, for those that are new or visiting, you're here uh, for the child dedication. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Arbor. It's so good to be with all of you. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get those out and you can turn to the Gospel of Mark. That's where we're going to be today. That's where we're going to be for a while. We are starting a brand new series today called The Life and Way of Jesus. And we are going to be doing a deep dive into the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to spend a lot of time in it primarily because uh, the people that Mark wrote his gospel to are a lot like us. It was written for the early churches who were already familiar with the life and the way of Jesus. They, these were those early churches all around the Roman Empire, churches that were suffering, churches that were struggling to figure out how exactly do we follow Jesus in the world today. The gospel of Mark is written as a reminder of who Jesus really was, what Jesus actually did, and most importantly, what it looks like to truly follow him. And to be honest, as we walk through Mark, what we're going to find is that it's a bit of a confrontational reality check on the nature of being a Christian in the world. And so as we move forward as a church, as we move forward into a new season of growth and as the Spirit continues to lead our church into new and uncharted territory, I, I don't think it would hurt for all of us to have a bit of like a confrontational reality check as to who we think Jesus really is, as to what it means to be a Christian in the world today. That perhaps for many of us in the room right now, it will be good to be shaken from our previously held beliefs and notions of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him and what the gospel is, that we would be reminded, that, that we would be resubmerged in the life and way of Jesus Christ and be reacquainted with who he really is, that we would gain a comprehensive understanding of the full nature of the gospel and the implications of these realities, not just on our lives individually, but as a community. So that's why we're going in and we're diving into the gospel of Mark. And we're gonna, we're gonna try something a little bit differently here today. If you would, if you could, would you please stand with me as I read the first 15 verses of the gospel of Mark. You guys thought you were all done sitting, you're all relaxed, throwing you a curveball here. Here we go, verse one. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I 
the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Verse 15, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, right now as we open up these scriptures, God, we just ask that you would open our minds and our hearts. And God, I pray today that there would be something new and fresh about the life of Jesus that would resonate with us, that you would highlight for us, and that it would get into our bones this morning. Jesus, we come to you with the expectations of who we think you are and what we think you're like. Even if we've been following you for a really long time, Jesus, we we ask you, as we come to this gospel, we ask you to shape us according to who you really are. Lord, if there are things that we think about you that are wrong, would you reorient them? If there are ways of living, God, that are out of step with your spirit, would you help us change? We humbly ask that you would teach us and show us, Lord. I submit my capacities to you and ask that your spirit would lead us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can take a seat. Um, A few weeks ago, in our Emotionally Healthy Relationships, we learned about this skill uh, called clarifying expectations. And And the reason we talked about this is oftentimes, unmet expectations are at the root of, of, of conflict or brokenness in a relationship. As it's often been said, unmet expectations are at the root of all disappointment. Unmet expectations are at the root of all disappointment. For instance, many years ago, my family and I, we went and got ice cream one time, and the kids got these things like these SpongeBob Square Pants popsicles, and they're supposed to look like this, but then they opened them up, and they looked a little bit more like this. Yeah, so like you had the expectation and you had the reality and they don't quite match, and so there was a little bit of disappointment naturally until they realized, hey, this is still made of sugar, and I'm totally fine. I'm going to eat this thing and be totally satisfied. But listen, we've all been disappointed with someone or something in our lives. We had expectations for a movie that we wanted to go see and it was bad and so we're disappointed. We had expectations uh, for a family vacation that would be relaxing and enjoyable but the kids complained the whole time and it wasn't any of those things and so we're disappointed. We had expectations for what marriage would be like and then we found out our spouse was less than perfect and so we were disappointed. We've all been disappointed in different ways and and in an even more important, like more serious matter, I think many of us have had expectations of who God is and who Jesus is and, and for whatever reason, those expectations haven't been met and so many of us in this room here today and some of us listening and watching online, we find ourselves disappointed with God. We find ourselves disappointed with God because he hasn't met our expectations and and so we are wrestling, we are left wrestling with, with this idea of who God is and the disappointments that we have surrounding our relationship with him. 
And I certainly don't know every single person's story, every, every one of you, uh, your struggles right now, but I certainly know that I have wrestled with my fair share of disappointment with God. And just wrestling with God and being like, God, I, I thought this would be easier. God, I thought following you would look differently than, than how it looks. God, I had these expectations of what being a Christian would be like, and yet you're not meeting any of these expectations. And so you wrestle with this disappointment about, about what God is in your life. And maybe you can resonate with some of that, that God hasn't met those expectations in your life. And if you find yourself, listen, if you find yourself in a similar position then I wanna pose this simple question to you at the outset of our journey through Mark, and it's, and it's just this. When you decided to follow Jesus, what did you expect? When you personally decided to follow Jesus, if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you would call yourself a disciple of his, when you decided to follow him, what did you expect was going to happen? Like maybe you had expectations that your life would all of a sudden be full of meaning and purpose and as you've been following Jesus throughout the years, you just don't feel that? Or maybe as you set off and you began to follow Jesus, you had these expectations that you would be part of something exciting and something influential and that, it, that life would feel like it mattered and yet it doesn't. Or, or maybe, maybe you didn't have expectations like that, but you just expected that as you followed Jesus, you would have a roadmap for your life so that you could live kind of this well-manicured, easy, kind of well-contained life and life just simply hasn't unfolded that way for you. When you started following Jesus, what did you expect? was going to happen. I, I just wanna suggest here at the beginning that if you find yourself just wrestling with these expectations of who you thought God was, maybe you find yourself disappointed, I just wanna suggest here at the beginning, gently and kindly, as a fellow journeyer, as someone who is struggling along the way, that if we have these unmet expectations and these disappointments with our walk with Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, then maybe I would just suggest that perhaps maybe the problem isn't, isn't with God. Maybe just maybe the problem is with our expectations. So when you decided to follow Jesus, what did you expect was going to happen? And here's why I bring this up at the very beginning of our study of Mark, because, because the Jesus that Mark presents throughout his gospel is a Jesus who utterly defies expectations the entire gospel. Uh, throughout Mark, Mark explains that Jesus is, is, is an incredible teacher, and yet throughout the gospel, we barely see Jesus teach at all. And when we actually find him teaching, like we see him teaching in Mark 4, he teaches in such a way that almost adds to the mystery and adds to the confusion. In Mark's gospel, Jesus appears to be anti-evangelism. Like anytime he casts out a demon, he tells that demon, don't tell anybody who I am. When he heals people, when he performs miracles, he tells them, don't tell people who I am. Jesus defies expectations throughout this gospel. In Mark's gospel, the Jesus we encounter is not the meek and gentle and mild Jesus I think many of us think of and many of us prefer, but the Jesus that Mark presents to us, oftentimes he comes across a little rude He's confrontational, he's abrupt, he rebukes his disciples a number of times and he does it in a pretty sharp way. And so what we see here is that Mark's Jesus defies expectations because that's what Jesus did, it's what he did then, it's what he does now. 
But here in Mark's gospel, Mark makes it abundantly clear at the very beginning of his gospel who he thinks Jesus is. We are clued in on this from the very beginning in Mark's gospel, chapter one, verse one. Mark writes this. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Your translation might read something like the beginning of the gospel, about Jesus, the Christ, or Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this sentence right here is such an important sentence in the Gospel of Mark. It will hang over the entire Gospel like a title, guiding us as we journey through this book. It will, it will, it will hang there the entire time. And, and Mark begins his story in kind of an interesting way. As you saw, as we read in those first 15 verses, he doesn't begin it with the birth narrative like Matthew or Luke. He actually begins it with this Greek word, arche, which simply means beginning. So that's how Mark starts his story. He just says, beginning. This is the beginning of my story. Um, as I was raising my kids, I read them a lot of stories and, and even like children's writers seem to have more creativity than saying, this is the beginning of my book, y'all. Like, but that's, that's what Mark is doing here. He just says, this is, this is the beginning of my book. But, but the thing is that we're not able to approach this with like first century ears. You have to imagine in the first century as they would have heard this text, the beginning, Mark would have been awakening people's minds to, 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 the, to the book of Genesis where it says, in the beginning God created and so the minds of the audience in our minds should go back to the book of the beginnings. And why does Mark do this? Well, Mark does this because he's trying to create some parallels here. And he's saying that the God who, who was in charge and initiated the creation of the entire universe is now here in this new era. He is initiating new creation. He is initiating redemption on our behalf. And so there's a larger story arc going on here. That's what Mark is trying to clue us into here. That, there, that this is the beginning of something brand new, but in reality, it's actually the climax of something very, very old. That, that, that Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, they're actually not the beginning of a story, but they're the continuation of a much older, much longer narrative story arc that begins all the way back in the Old Testament. And what we find in the Gospels is the climax, is the culmination of the story of the people of Israel. That's what we find here. Jesus says as much in verse 15. He says, the time has come. Or your translation might say, the time is fulfilled. Like, like, it's, like it's all been boiling up to this moment right here. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come near. And so what we see here right at the very beginning of Mark is that Mark is situated in a much larger drama and being aware of this larger drama is very, very important as we dive into the Gospel of Mark. And so here is a quick review of this larger drama at hand. In the very beginning, what Mark is trying to draw our minds to, we must remember that God created this world beautiful and good, hospitable, and he placed us as humanity in the midst of this world to rule and reign as image bearers of God and to spread his reign and to spread his flourishing. But as many of us know in this story, tragically, we rebelled and we chose not to side with God, but we chose to side with chaos and disorder. 
Fast forward like many, many years, God calls to himself a new people, the people of Israel, and they were called out of all the nations of the world to join in relationship with God, to be a people of justice who would live in such a way where they would care for the poor, they would care for the widow, they would care for the orphan, they would live in such a way where people wouldn't lose their land, they would live in such a way where people wouldn't find themselves in crushing debt and their collective practices and their community dynamics would embody and would manifest the kingship of God in this world. However, they didn't do this either. Like early humanity, they sided with chaos and with disorder, and this eventually led to their downfall and to their enslavement. And throughout those years, at the end of this time, if you're reading the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, there were starts of like false hope, but eventually they found themselves oppressed, a people oppressed, a people occupied under Roman occupation, And Israel found themselves a people longing for salvation. That's the context in which Mark finds itself. A people longing for salvation, but a holistic salvation. A salvation beyond just their soul. They were longing for liberation economically, politically, socially. And this is what they expected. They were longing for a salvation that's probably far more profound and and far more pervasive than we can even begin to imagine right now. And this is what they longed for and this is what they hoped for. And then along comes Jesus. Mark makes the announcement. He says, here is Jesus and he is this Messiah. In the Greek, the word there in Mark 1.1 is actually this Greek word Christos, which we translate as Christ, but that's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is where we get our word Messiah from. And in that early first century Jewish mindset, the Messiah would be one who would come into the world and would conquer Israel's oppressors and would reign on a throne in Jerusalem forever, ushering in this incredible, glorious messianic age through, through warlike battle victory. Most people thought this, this was their expectation that this Messiah, the anointed one, that's actually quite literally what that Hebrew phrase means, that this anointed one would come in and rule over the Jewish people. This was their expectations, but if you remember what we talked about at the very beginning, the Jesus that's presented in Mark is a Jesus that defies expectations. He defies expectations. And so again, we as the readers, we know who Jesus is. Mark is the author of this gospel. He knows who this Jesus is, but then we have this statement at the outset of the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, but this statement at the very beginning creates tension, it creates conflict, because every good story, every good story requires conflict. It requires tension. And what we see as Mark's gospel unfolds is is, is that he will encounter person after person and they will meet him. But here's the thing, they will not have the full picture as to who Jesus really is. They will have expectations of him that he is going to defy, that he is not going to live up to. And here's the thing, I can't help but think that if they had Jesus right in front of their faces, if they walked with him and they talked to him and they had him there and they couldn't get it, then who's to say that we've totally got it? Who's to say that we've totally got it? I mean, maybe we've got some of the major pieces arranged correctly, but what if we're missing some of it? What if we're missing some pretty major things about Jesus and about his message, about what it really means to follow him? 
I mean, it's been hundreds, nearly thousands of years since Jesus has walked this earth. It doesn't seem that far-fetched that we might miss a few things along the way. There's this article that was circulating the internet like many years ago, 12 or 13 years ago. It was called, When Scary Jesus Makes the News. That's a great title, right? When Scary Jesus Makes the News. And the author described Jesus by saying that Christians are deeply ignorant of the real teachings of the true, mystical, renegade, anti-authority Jesus who is about as far from the modern, Pentecostal, evangelical, fundamentalist, organized religion worldview as a vegan from a Kansas slaughterhouse. That's a dramatic statement, okay? So we don't have to agree with that hyperbolic statement, but here's the thing. What if in some little part that guy is right? What if we just granted a little bit of just like, what if, what if maybe we are missing something? Is there a chance that like these first century folks, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, those who walked with Jesus, who missed who he truly was, is there a chance that we've somehow got pieces of it wrong? Is there a chance that there are new things for us to understand and learn about this Jesus that could lead us individually to experience a, a walk with him that would flourish in such a way that would, that would just be incredible as a community? Are there things that we can encounter about this Jesus that maybe we have left on the wayside for years and years and years? I believe that God, through the Gospel of Mark, wants to reveal to us certain things about what it means to follow Jesus that will absolutely revolutionize our community and our individual walks with him. Here's the thing, is there a chance we got him wrong though? The point of all that is this, when it comes to Jesus, what we get is what we're looking for. Oftentimes, when it comes down to Jesus, what we get is what we're looking for. And again, so my my hope is that as we journey through Mark, would we not show up just convinced that we know who Jesus is and that he's all about what we we think he's about and what he came to do for us, that we would show up in the weeks to come and would would we be like Jesus? Would you reveal yourself to us? Would you help us to understand you more clearly so that we can love others well like you? So that we can carry the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Listen, because it's very easy to get Jesus wrong. Mark is like essentially a case study in people getting Jesus wrong. And, And no one got Jesus wrong more than the disciples. The disciples got Jesus wrong so many times, and here's the thing, as we read the Gospel of Mark, we are supposed to identify with the disciples, okay? It's kind of a humbling exercise, but throughout the Gospel of Mark, what we we see this most clearly in chapter eight. And chapter eight in the Gospel of Mark is like this hinge chapter. Chapters one through seven, what we see at the, after that verse 15, where Jesus says the kingdom of God has come, chapters one through seven, man, Jesus is just getting to work. And this is miracle after miracle. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's walking on water two different times. He multiplies the loaves. And, and this entire time, uh, Mark keeps using this Greek word euthis, which means immediately. And as you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, you'll just see this word over and over again, immediately, immediately, immediately. And you might just think like, man, like Mark's vocabulary was really limited. This guy wasn't a very smart dude. But the thing about it is it's actually an intentional narrative device to to help us understand the breakneck pace at which Jesus was moving through Galilee and through Judea and through Israel, healing people and ushering in the kingdom of God. But chapter eight is like a hinge point and everything begins to change at chapter eight. 
Jesus is walking with his disciples and it's kind of like this interlude in the Gospel of Mark and he's walking with his disciples over this area called Caesarea Philippi which back then, according to the first century Jewish mind, was like this graveyard for all of these demons and that's where they would all come out of and that's where Jesus is hanging out in chapter eight. And he turns to his disciples. You can turn there for yourselves, Mark chapter eight. He turns to them in verse 29 and he asks them this question. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And again, remember, as readers, we know the answer to this. Chapter one, verse one, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, but now the disciples are asked, and so lo and behold, who speaks up? Peter, of course, and and this is what he says. Listen to what he says. He says, you are the Messiah. And we might go, as we're reading this, say if we're reading this for the first time, we might go, amazing. Like, they're getting it. They're like cluing in and they're figuring out. But listen, while the answer is right on the surface, what we need to understand is that Peter, what he understood the Messiah to be was not what Jesus came to be. Does that make sense? Peter had expectations of what Jesus was as the Messiah. They were in line with that first century Jewish understanding that the Messiah would bring this nationalistic, victorious crushing of the Roman Empire and that he would reign in Jerusalem forever. That's who Peter thinks the Messiah is supposed to be. Those are his wrong expectations of Jesus. And look at verse 30. Look at Jesus' response to Peter. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about them. And this is where things get really interesting because Peter says, you are the Messiah. And you would think Jesus would say, you're right. You got it. Now go spread the gospel. Go tell the whole world. But he doesn't do that. He says, don't tell a soul. (laughs) Why does he say that? Why does he say that? Well, scholars call this the messianic secret motif, okay? That's just a little theological term we're throwing out there for today, but the messianic secret motif. And here's here's the thought behind this. Jesus tells people throughout his gospel, throughout the gospel of Mark, not to reveal who he really is because they think they understand who he is, but Jesus commands them not to say it because they don't really get it. And why? Well, look at verse 31. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus begins to correct them. And and Jesus said this, he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This is the first time he's sharing this with them and everyone at this point would be like, what are you talking about? Like this is not part of the plan. This is not what the Messiah is supposed to do. And it says this, he spoke plainly about this and then listen, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I think it's a good idea to like (laughs) pull Jesus aside and be like, nah, Jesus, you gotta listen, man. Like you're not not gonna die. Like what are you talking, like I got your back and, and these guys, we got your back. Like you're good, you're not gonna die. But then look at what Jesus does in verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Again, a similar point as as to what we said earlier. We can be guilty of making up our own versions of Jesus. Even, Even the earliest disciples who walked with Jesus were guilty of this. They were guilty of making up a Jesus that they were comfortable with following 
that would fight for their causes, their agenda, whether it be world peace or self-righteousness or whatever it might be. Listen, we're all guilty of this. We can construct our own Jesus and what he would do, and then we follow that. So the reason why Jesus tells almost every single person throughout the Gospel of Mark to keep quiet about him is because they don't have the whole picture. They think they recognize Jesus and who he really is, but they have a lot to learn about who he really is. Now, after this pivotal interaction in chapter eight, um, the miraculous works of Jesus just basically stop. From chapter eight all the way through chapter 16, Jesus does like two, maybe three more incredible things. It's debatable. But, but, but from this point forward, from chapter eight through the end of the gospel of Mark, the single most important interpretive symbol to understand who Jesus is and what the Messiah actually is, is the cross. Not his miracles, not the healing, not the walking on water. Over and over again, Jesus will say, what I'm about And who I am, it leads to the cross. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. And this is is really important. He says in verse 34, right after this interaction with Peter, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, my follower, my apprentice, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And so this is the main thing right here in Mark. Jesus can only rightly be rightly understood and rightly followed as the Messiah, the Son of God, if he is understood as the one who will surrender his power in order to suffer and die. It's the only way he can be, rightly be understood. And at the core of, of the tension throughout Mark's gospel is that no one truly sees Jesus for who he really is. They think they do, but they don't, and they can't understand him until they see him on the cross He can't truly be followed as their Messiah. He can't truly be followed and apprenticed under unless you're willing to follow Jesus to the cross. And as Jesus would eventually march to the cross, to Golgotha, on trumped up charges, beaten, brutal torture, mocking crowds, as he hung on that bloody, rugged cross, gasping for breath, forgiving his betrayers, forgiving those who tortured him, At that moment, there was one person, according to Mark, one person who truly saw Jesus for who he really was. Mark 15, 39. Who is it? It's a pagan Roman centurion. You you couldn't get further away from who the readers would have thought the people of God really were than this guy. I mean, the Romans were the oppressors of Israel. Centurions used brute force and violence to, to, to get their way. This is about as bad as it gets. And as he's standing next to Jesus, making sure he actually dies on the cross, I mean, that was his job, to make sure Jesus was fully dead. That was his thing. He says these words, Mark 15, 39. He says, surely this man was the son of God. Here's the one guy who gets it, the centurion. And so do you see the full circle here? Mark starts his gospel by saying, 
This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And throughout the gospel, person after person just doesn't get it. But finally, Jesus on the cross, a Roman pagan centurion sees him on the cross and identifies him as the Son of God. Finally, someone understands who he really is. Someone gets Jesus. And so you see, we have these expectations of who Jesus is. We have these expectations, and because of them, we often get what we're looking for when we look at Jesus with those expectations. And we're all guilty of making up our own versions of Jesus. And what Mark is trying to communicate to us, what Mark is trying to communicate to his readers, those early churches trying to figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus in an empire of of, of power and violence and, and domination? What does it look like to follow Jesus? What we see is that we can only truly follow Jesus when we see him as he wants to be seen, and that's the Son of God on the cross in weakness, broken. And I don't simply mean that we look to the cross and that we know Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. That's a a huge part of it, and that's super important, and we see that Jesus says that over and over again. But Jesus' primary corrective teaching around going to the cross, what we saw in Mark 8.34, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And so when you decided to follow Jesus, what did you expect? Because this is what Jesus expects, that you would deny yourself, that you would take up your cross, and that you would follow him. These are his expectations. The way of Jesus is the way of suffering agape love for other people. Throughout the gospel, the disciples just don't get it. In Matthew t- or Mark 10, actually, Jesus is, is correcting his disciples for the third time And he's telling them where his way leads, the way of the cross. It leads to suffering. It leads to shame. It leads to pain. It's a way of humiliation. And he's telling his disciples this. And James and John, in the midst of this corrective teaching, they go up to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, um, you might know the story. They go up to Jesus and they say, hey, can you do us a favor? And Jesus is like, sure, what do you want? And they're like, hey, when, when you go into, into Jerusalem and you wipe out the Romans, can we sit at your right and left hand side and, and just conquer and reign with you? And Jesus is like, oh my gosh. You just don't get it. You don't get it. You see, James, John, so many of the disciples were following Jesus because they thought that Jesus would make their life plan happen. That's what they thought. They wanted to be the best, they wanted to rule, they wanted to reign, and they were like, we're following you, Jesus, because you're going to make the thing in my life happen. And Jesus is like, no. Following me, the cross, my way, is about servanthood. It's about dying to yourself. It's about being the least among you. It's not about making your life plans happen. And then he gathers them one last time for some more corrective teaching. And in chapter 10, verse 42, he says this. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this is Jesus' corrective teaching on, on, on what the cross is all about, on what his life is all about, on, what, on, on who he as the Messiah truly is. That when we choose to follow Jesus, we choose a life of death to self for the sake of others. And this is where salvation is found. This is how we find life in Jesus when we serve like he did, when we are literally his hands and his feet and his mind and his mouth and his body. And so as we study this book of Mark, here's my hope. In the weeks and in the months to come, as we study this book, my hope is that we would gain a greater vision of who Jesus really is and what our discipleship to him really looks like, what our salvation in him really looks like, what our life in him looks like, that it's not just simply about the forgiveness of my sins now and a ticket to heaven later, and that it's about this sort of, that's a a big part of it, but what Mark is teaching us is that the fullness of our salvation is actually about becoming like Jesus and following the cross-shaped way of Jesus. That's what following Jesus is about. It's about becoming a servant to all. It's, it's about becoming last and not first. And, and I'll just say at the outset, I can feel it in the room right now. This is, this is a really hard thing to teach in our world and our culture today. And it's an even harder thing to live out. Like some of you might be listening to this about like being a servant and dying to self and taking up your cross and you hear that and you're like, listen, like if that stuff is true, and the implications are what I think they really are, then I can't work at the job that I work at anymore. Or or I can't compete like I compete anymore. Or I can't think the thoughts that I think or live or behave or act in the way that I have been, like I've, I've been living in my life and if that's you, then yeah, like yes, that is true. That is true about the way of Jesus. As we follow him, we will be confronted with opportunities to change our mind. That's what repentance means, the Greek word metanoia. It means to change one's mind. We will have to change our minds and, and, and rethink who is this Jesus and what does it really look like to follow him right now in 2023, in this area, in our world, in this time right now. And my hope is that as we, as we follow Jesus and as we learn about him through the gospel of Mark, that it would cause all of us to rethink how we use our influence how we use our resources, how we use our authority, how we use the power that God has given us to advance not our own kingdoms, but to advance God's kingdom in in the service of other people because that's what salvation is all about. That's the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. It's not something that we simply wait for to happen in the future. It's something we can live in in the here and now. And that's my hope. That's my prayer. Would you pray with me now? Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for this word. We thank you for, for Mark. We thank you for the, for the bluntness of Mark and the confrontational reality, Lord, that, that we see a Jesus that maybe some of us um, have, have grown unfamiliar with. And, and so, so God, as, as a church, uh, we wanna come before you and we just want to lay down before you and surrender before you our, our preconceived notions and our expectations of who you are and what you came to do and what it means to follow you. And, and, and spirit, we just invite you. We invite you into this process. We invite you into this moment. And if there are ways in our lives right now that you are already beginning to show us and, and reveal to us, God, 
Areas, areas where we need to change the way we're thinking, uh, areas of our lives that we need to change our conduct. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would begin to, to gently lead us down that road right now. And God, we just wanna invite you into this process because we wanna be a community, Lord, that, that, that loves like you. We, we wanna help others find and follow you. We, we wanna follow you together in this area and we wanna see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And then so Jesus, we just pray that you would just bless our time in this gospel. Rearrange the furniture in our mind about who you are. And would you change us and call us to, to walk deeply with you, Jesus. That's what we long for. We long to walk deeply with you, not just individually, but as a community, God. And so we ask you, would you lead us that direction, Jesus, we pray. Amen.